You're listening to a message from the Winsboro Church of Christ. This is the Winsboro.Church podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or prayer requests, you can get in touch with us at any time through our website at Winsboro.Church. Good morning, church family. As we continue to look at this theme of rejection at the end of the Gospel of Mark, we're wrapping up Mark's account of this story of Jesus and his life, and the closer we get to the end, to the final rejection, the cross, well, the rejection intensifies from several quarters, That whereas once they embraced and rejoiced in Jesus' teachings, now especially the religious leaders are saying, no, we reject that. And rejection is something that's acceptable between peers. For instance, I'm just a guy. Happen to be a preacher for my occupation, and hopefully I am accurate in the things that I say, and that I'm biblical, and that I'm faithful. I want to be, but so do you. And so we come at equal playing fields. I have maybe experience and education that uh, not everyone else does, but I am still a fallible person who misses things, who misunderstands things, who misspeaks sometimes. And so you may, at different points, be sitting there listening to me speak and think to yourself, I don't know about that. And even, Colby, I reject that idea. I reject your notion of what you're saying. I reject the truth of what you're saying. I think you're not true. I think you're mistaken. And I might say the same thing about you whenever you're speaking. And, and to some extent, that's healthy conversation. That, that's kind of hashing things out and trying to respectfully disagree and look toward what we do have in common and then trying to find out where the truth is. And maybe I have it. Maybe you have it. Maybe it's somewhere in between or even off somewhere we're not even considering. And we're both just inherently wrong. That's okay. And so I do not demand people accept me because I'm just a guy. And if you reject some of the things I say or think or whatever, that's okay. So be it. I'll probably reject some of yours. But to reject Jesus, to in fact reject God, the one who sent Jesus as the Son of God, to show us exactly the nature and perfect teaching and truths of God himself to reject God, that's something much more serious because we reject his authority over us and saying, well, I know you think you know what's right, God, but I'm not so sure. I'll reject your idea of what's right and I'll follow mine. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. God told them what was right and what was wrong and listening to the serpent being tempted, they decided, well, I'm not so sure God knows what he's talking about. I reject God's notion that I shouldn't eat this tree and I want to eat it anyway. I want to eat of this fruit anyway. And we've been doing that ever since. And it is a serious crime. It is a serious sin with heavy consequences to say to God, to say to Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the one through whom life and salvation comes, to say, I reject you. And yet that's exactly what the people were doing. And Jesus knew this. And actually, Jesus tells us a parable 
where he kind of shows the whole nation of Israel and Israel's leaders especially that they have been rejecting God time and time and time again. This is nothing new. This is what the human race and particularly the people of Israel with their covenant with God, they have been rejecting what God has been trying to do rather holding on to what they wanted. And again, it's not just preference. It's not just opinion. They're rejecting their king. Mark chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for its wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his portion of the crop. But those tenants seized his slave, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave to them again. This one they struck on the head and treated outrageously. He sent another, and that one they killed. This happened to many others, some of whom were beaten, others killed. He had one left, his one dear son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. This is an incredible story of an incredible, outrageous thought that an owner, a good owner, a responsible owner, a rightful owner, hires people to work his vineyard. And when harvest time comes, the owner wants his share of what was done because it's his land, it's his grapes, you know, it's his farm that is producing these things and the workers will get their pay, but the owner, of course, wants his investment to be returned. They don't want to return it. They want to keep it for themselves. And so they reject the slaves, one after another. Some they beat, some they kill. And eventually, of course, here comes the son. And Jesus is the son comes to finish the Father's task, to call people to the Father, to produce fruit, and to have that fruit abundantly and to bless everyone who will receive it. But the tenant farmers, those who were given the teaching and the light and the guidance of God to begin with, those religious leaders, especially in the nation of Israel, they don't want to adhere to their king. They don't want to adhere to the owner of the vineyard for whom they work, for whom they are simply but stewards. They want to hold on to what they have. And so they even reject the son. And by rejecting the son, they reject the father. And so that rejection is weighty. That, that rejection is unthinkable because they should have, out of everyone, they should have embraced the son. In ancient times, a son carried the weight of his father's business dealing. So if you need to go to a bank and withdraw some money, a father could send his son and his son could write his name on the line as the representative of the father. And that's so to do business with the son, you were in fact doing business with the father. That's how they thought. That was the authority given to the son, especially the adult son, by the father to carry out business. And so to deal with one was like to deal with the other. And so that's part of the weight and the meaning of Jesus' 
claiming to be and showing us that he is in fact the son of God. He is the one with the full authority and weight of God being right there because God was. And so to reject the son, they reject the father and incur his wrath because it's not just rejection. It's rebellion. It's betrayal. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus answers his own question. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, verse 12, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd. The reason they wanted to arrest him because they realized that he told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. In the previous chapter, he has cleansed the temple. He has overturned the tables and driven those buying and selling and you know, saying, this is my father's house. How you doing? You're making a den of robbers. In that moment, they say, let's kill this guy. And then he tells this parable. The very next chapter. He tells this parable and there's no question. It's not very subtle. They know he's speaking about them. These religious leaders know and realize he's talking like we're the ones who killed the prophets and those you know, faithful to God in the past because they were. Time and again, they rejected the message of the prophets. Man, so many of the books of our Old Testament were actually rejected by those in authority. So it's kind of crazy and shows, I think, the providence of God that they ended up in the Old Testament to begin with. Jeremiah was rejected by the kings of his day. Isaiah, Ezekiel, so many of the prophets who actually recorded their works, you know, the kings wanted to burn those works and get rid of them because they didn't speak too favorably of them, but they, they lasted. God protected them, I believe. And so the voice of these prophets carried on, even though the prophets themselves often were killed, often were persecuted, often lived difficult, hard lives with pain and suffering, simply because they were faithful. Because those with power, those with the authority, those who wanted to hold on to the authority that they had didn't want to listen to the messages of correction, to the messages of discipline that we talked about last week. And so they rebelled. They rejected them as being representatives of God and again, they betrayed the agreement they had made with God. One of the verses we looked at last week was Mark chapter 17, verse 11. And in it, when Jesus is cleansing the temple, he says that my father's house was meant to be a house for all the nations, a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, whenever God gave Israel the temple, he intended it to be a light that kind of shone the truth and beauty of the worship of the one true God of the universe and that other nations around them would come and flock to them. They were supposed to be that light and that beacon of hope to the surrounding peoples around them where people would go, I want a God like that. I don't want the God like Baal or Molech and, and these other cruel and bitter and evil and twisted gods themselves that the gods of these pantheons of these polytheistic religions, you know, had. They're not moral creatures. They're vile and often trying to just get whatever pleasure they can get at whatever expense of people they can have it at. And 
Israel's God is a God of benevolence, a God of blessing, a protective father, a jealous husband, someone invested in his people, and totally foreign to the concept of God and gods of so many other peoples around them. So they were meant to be this light that shined in the darkness. Old Testament and New Testament, and Jesus keys in on some of that verbiage and some of those words as far as be a light that shines, be a city upon a hill, be a lamp on a lampstand. But we fail in that calling. And forget that the reason why God blesses us in the first place, the reason why God blessed Israel and called them out of Egypt to be his people, you know, it wasn't just you know, so that they could enjoy being free. No, he said, now I've got a job for you to do. You show the glory of the Lord to other people around you as well. That the blessings of God, which we've already received, are given with the intent that people use those blessings to further his glory. And to take those blessings and hoard them. To take those blessings and hold on to them is to betray the terms of the agreement that God has made with us. And that's exactly what these tenant farmers are doing in this story that reflects so many of the religious leaders of the people of Israel. That give me, give me, give me. Oh yeah, we get all these grapes and we get to drink the wine from this vineyard and oh, this is such a great cushy job. And God, the owner shows up and says, well, what have you done? What fruit have you borne? How have you expanded my kingdom and my resources? And how have you, you know, earned back the things that I have invested in you? And they betray the terms of the agreement by saying, no, it's ours. We're not going to share. And it's not a matter of share. It's you owe this to God. And not that God is a cruel taskmaster. He, he wants us to enjoy the blessings as well. But he says, use them. I'm not just giving them to you for your sake. I'm giving them so that the world may see the blessings they can have in God as well. And if we don't live up to that calling, if we don't live up to our job to be, as 2 Corinthians tells us, vessels that show God's glory, not ours, but God's glory, and to be ambassadors of reconciliation. If we don't live up to that, then we're violating, we're betraying the agreement God made with us in the first place. We're also prone to betray the spirit of the investment that the agreement was made with in the first place. That, you know, we might try to find loopholes or follow the letter of the law but reject the spirit of the law and that's not the spirit of God in the least. That he actually makes this agreement with us and this investment that he makes in us is on good faith. That God looks at us and says, I'm going to pour my blessings and my Holy Spirit himself right into you. And oh, your life will be so much better. And that life will overflow, fill, it, fill you up to overflowing where others around can see it and be blessed by it as well. And so really as the kingdom of God grows, as his church was to grow and spread across the globe as we've done largely, 
We were supposed to be overflowing with blessings and light and pointing people to God. But much like the Israelite leaders that Jesus is condemning in this parable, we betray the spirit of that investment. We uh, speak about God and we puff out our chest and act as though you know, we're the important ones because God has blessed us and given us his message and given us his salvation and we get to sit in churches and worship and pray and do the Christian thing. Forgetting that you know, the spirit of the investment is to bring in others. The spirit of the investment is to give God a return on his investment. That's what investments are. And we're not just some, you know, bank account or stock market, you know, item. God does love us as a father would love his children, as a father does love his children. But even fathers who love their children want their children to grow up and be productive. All the things that I pour into my children, I hope that aren't just there to be poured into like a black hole sucking everything out. Sometimes I feel that way about my bank account, that that's what they're doing, but that's okay because I hope that they grow up to be responsible. Uh, I hope they grow up to be productive citizens. I hope that they grow up to be vital members of the church, contributing. I hope that, that their lives, because of the blessings that they've received, will bless others. And my love isn't somehow contingent upon that, but you know, my actions and the things I poured into them is. That's why there's God, the reason why he's poured so much into us, so that we can naturally again be filled up to overflowing. He's invested in us. Just like he invested in those tenants of his vineyard, Jesus' parable. And he has a right to come back and say, what have you done? Where's the return? What have you been up to? Have you been using this vineyard and you know to further my kingdom? Or just using it for yourself? Another way we betray the owner of the vineyard is to betray his authority. He is the rightful owner. It's his. He purchased it. It belongs to him. Or as in God's case, it's always been his. He created it. He made it. He can demand of it whatever he desires because it's always been his. And yet he's given it to us to work it as stewards. This kingdom, this church, this message of reconciliation and salvation through Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, both as individuals and as a collective people. And it's always been his. We've always been his. My skin, my brain, my heart, my flesh, my everything. He made it. I wholly belong to him. And again, he doesn't require it as a tyrant, but he knows me. And he even loves me, even though he knows my flaws, but he also knows my potential and what I can do. And he calls me to live up to that calling. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Live up to the calling with which you've been called. God knows what you can do. Now strive for it, work toward it. 
acknowledge his authority that he can, in fact, tell you what is owed. Not that we can repay a debt, never. But we can be faithful farmers, faithful tenants, faithful vine keepers in the vineyard, knowing that it's not just for our use and for our power, but that we say, you are in charge. That's what the tenant farmer should have done in Jesus' parable with the very first slave that came and especially with the son himself. And that's the whole point of the father sending the son in the parable was so that they would wake up and see that, oh yeah, I forgot, he's the one in charge. And I will submit to that leadership. That's the response that should have been. But even though we know all that, we kind of hold on to our own desires anyway. Like, ah, I don't want to give it all up. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. They were willing to give a little bit. But they wanted to hold back some and lie about what they gave. They were unfaithful stewards. And they faced the consequence. And in the parable, the tenants of the vineyard faced the consequence as well. Now, what would an owner do in that case? Well, the only logical response, drive them out to kill them, to take for them to be punished for their crimes. The punishment fits the crime. They killed his son. They killed his slaves. He's not going to take it easy on them. And he's going to take that vineyard and give it to someone else. So the religious leaders in charge of that vineyard, this, is, this speaks against them and they knew it. And they hated Jesus for it even more. In this, this rejection, this, they, betray, they, they reject Jesus and they betray Jesus and they, it, this propels him closer to the cross because they can't stand it because they know he's speaking against them. They're going to be the ones who face the consequences. They're the ones who the vineyard's going to be taken away. They're no longer going to be in charge because they're not fit to be in charge anymore. It's going to be given to somebody else. And who's it going to be given to? Well, in the context of the gospel, specifically, you have these fishermen, tax collectors, the ones who actually were following Jesus. The kingdom was going to be shown and spread through them. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the kings and they were rejecting Jesus and so they were going to lose the vineyard that they thought was theirs. It wasn't theirs. It was God's and God only gave it to them so that they could spread his kingdom. And if they were going to fail, Jesus says, God won't hesitate to give it to somebody else. And then when we go beyond the gospel accounts and the life of Jesus and read into the book of Acts, we see that not only the poor, the, the simple, uh, the people like the apostles, but they then take it and they share it with the Gentile people, not even Jews, embracing them to come into the kingdom, to be the new tenants of the vineyard. Side by side, Jews and Gentiles together because those Jewish leaders corrupt kings and priests and things that rejected Jesus, they lost their place. And God brought in others. I wonder how many churches 
churches of Christ, churches of any denomination or group. I wonder how many of them God has invested in, but they failed to return that investment. They rejected God's call to bear fruit, to spread his kingdom. And God's response is, well, okay, I'll take the vineyard and give it to someone else. Maybe you could talk the right talk. Maybe you were really good at studying scripture. Maybe you had beautiful voices when you sang in your churches, but did you? Did you provide an investment, a return on my investment? Did you spread the light and the glory and the honor of God and the blessings of God in other people's lives and go and make disciples? Did you do your job? And if not, this parable clearly teaches he'll give that job to somebody else. Scary thought, a humbling thought, and hopefully a motivating thought where we wake up as his followers and realize we've got a job to do and a kingdom to embrace and the Lord to follow and that all the things he's poured into the Winsboro Church of Christ, all the things he's poured in the Colby Clap. And I know he's poured in a lot. Just Colby, use them. Be a good steward. Be ready to give account of how you've used it. And show others how good and great the blessings of God are. And pour your life into them. That's what God did to us. He poured Jesus' life into us. So this parable, in some ways, is even more scary on this side of the cross. And I think it still applies to churches today. I mean, it's, Jesus was obviously condemning the religious leaders throughout the history of Israel that rejected the prophets and the messages of God and richly Jesus himself. But if we're honest and look at this parable now, almost 2,000 years later, I think we can see we fell into that same trap. We're prone to fall into that same trap. And if they had the vineyard taken away from them because of their unfaithfulness, how much more now that we know exactly what Jesus did and how he purposefully poured himself into us, that just raises the stakes. I don't want to reject my responsibility. That's what this boils down to. It's not just rejecting Jesus, but rejecting my place in Jesus' kingdom. And he's asking me to do a job. Ask us to do a job. Let's go out and do it.